my name is Chalene Jackson. I think I forgot to introduce myself. I am with Moms for America. I have been with Moms for America for over a decade. I have been teaching these classes uh, for Moms for America. I've been teaching them in my little neighborhoods that I've uh, lived in around the country. I've attended classes uh, uh, that other women have taught. So I understand the power uh, of women gathering together to share experiences and to teach one another and to pray because the spirit of God it immediately comes to his choice daughters who call upon God to help them to learn and to understand these things that are going to be able to arm up our rising generation. So hey before we get started I just want to remind everyone if you haven't signed up, make sure you do. We're starting tomorrow, this 12-week series of the Cottage Meeting series, we just call it. It's uh, It will be every Thursday, 8 um, Eastern Standard Time, okay? So if you're living in a different time zone, uh, compute that to what it will be. There are one-hour classes, and it's really on how to implement, how to teach your children uh, the, the things that we're learning because sometimes mamas don't quite know how to break it down and to teach it to their children. And so uh, we'll talk about how you teach the constitution and the power of patriotism and, and the foundation of faith upon which this nation was laid, how to love liberty through arts, music, art, literature, poetry, how to teach principles of self-reliance. I mean, the topics are just beautiful. So I just spell it out you know, how do we teach what we're learning today about the constitution? How do we break it down and make it applicable to children of all age groups and grandchildren? And so really it's how do we raise up this next generation of patriots to love America so that they will perpetuate these ideals that were given to us, that were struck off by the hand of God, our founding mothers and fathers said. So I'd love it if you join with us. And daddies can, grandpas, children, teenagers, it's in the evening time, so it's easy to scoop up the, the family and have them sit and listen. Maybe they can do their homework while they're listening to uh, the seminar or coloring, or, or you can be, you know, doing dishes at the dish sink. But um, anyways, it's a great series, and so I hope you'll join us. That's tomorrow. Okay, so we finished last week, God's Hand in Building of America. Now, if for some reason you're coming fresh to us today, this is your first class as we're starting our seminar too, it's okay. Really these seminars are standalone, but you'll want to go through the beautiful content in the seminar one. All these classes are recorded. It takes four hours to get through a seminar. We have four one hour classes over the course of a month. So we are starting our seminar two. Hopefully you have your books and the Charter of Freedom. The Founders Charter of Freedom, which is another uh, name for the Constitution. Okay, so the last month we talked about how God used little Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and the pilgrims, you know, to establish this land and to, and to prepare it for those that would come. And then all the grievances and injuries uh, that uh, at the hand of Great Britain caused Samuel Adam and the Sons of Liberty to rise up, our father of the Revolutionary War, and, and the genius of Thomas Jefferson to write 
uh, the Declaration of Independence breaking off from England and then that Revolutionary War and the courage and vision of George Washington and then the miracle last week of the Constitutional Convention of these 13 independent little states coming together with their uh, 59 delegate, 55 delegates. And there were dark days of disagreement that four months in Philadelphia where they went back and forth and, and delegates were starting to get offended and leave. And then Benjamin Franklin, the oldest delegate, stood up and petitioned uh, the, um, the group to pray. And James Madison taking copious notes every day of the, of the proceedings of that constitution, he really was the best and most able political leader. And he was, would, James Madison would go on to be known as the father of the constitution. I have people walking around me here making noise, but um, welcome. This is my home, by the way, this is my front room. I've invited Thomas Jefferson today to be a part of our class. I just love, I have, if you come to my home, I have a bust of founding fathers and all the inspired documents on my wall. and. And so I just love the spirit of these great, I need a bust of a woman. I've got to find like Martha, one of the Marthas um, in my home because uh, without the, their good women by their side, these men could not have done what they did. And that's true for today as well. I just want to remind you that we uphold our men so they can uphold the family. These women upheld their men so they could uphold hold the nation. And so don't think that your role and assignment is any less than what some of these men of history or even today our husbands might be doing. Okay, so we had 39 of the del of delegates of the 55 delegates signed from each state uh, in um, September of 1787, the constitution. And so now it was their duty to win the hearts and minds of the states and the people. And so uh, primarily it was um, Alexander Hamilton, uh, John Jay and James Madison that wrote these articles uh, in the newspapers, convincing them and explaining to them about this new government. And those articles would go on to be known as the Federalist Papers uh, that detail you know, what our founders meant for this new constitutional government. So nine out of the 13 colonies uh, adopted, they they agreed, they ratified the constitution and it went into effect and, and ultimately uh, went into effect, uh, adopted. So it was ratified by the nine in 1788 and adopted by all. Rhode Island was the last uh, state to sign on. In 1789, that was the same year that George Washington was uh, sworn in as president of the United States. A few years ago, my husband went with Glenn Kimber, who helped to write this Healing of America seminar. His father was Cleon Skousen, who wrote the 5,000 Year Leap, which you will hear me talk about a lot, these 28 principles that our founders used to form this country. So my husband went with Glenn to speak at a Lincoln dinner. Have you ever been to Lincoln dinner? Every state has them, patriotic, usually conservative crowd. Um, uh, it was, this Lincoln dinner was in Washington state, about 300 people were there. Glenn Kimber was speaking to uh, this group. Now, my husband told me this story. I was not there. And he said, you know, uh, Dr. Kimber said, who loves America? Yay! Everyone, you know, cheered. Who loves our founding fathers and the constitution? Everyone cheered. And then he said, how many articles and amendments are in the constitution? <laughs> 
<laughs> there was a few little chirps, seven, 27. And then he said, how many um, amendments did our founding fathers give us? And it was crickets. It was silent from this group of people that, you know, purported to, to love the constitution and our founding fathers. When my husband told me this story, I thought, you know, isn't this true of me? How can I uphold and defend something? How can I teach and explain it to others if I don't know the basics of what's contained therein? And when we don't really understand the Constitution, we're more willing to just blindly accept what we're told is constitutional or not constitutional. So today and over the next four weeks, I really do believe you're gonna know more about the constitution than the average uh, citizen as we go through. So I'm gonna want you to go through and fill in the blanks before class or after class if you haven't done that, reread that material. So this um, begins to settle in your heart because we're gonna go through the constitution and like record speed, what some people would take, most people would take three years in law school to learn kind of thing. And so, but I, I promise to teach you the leading features that will be most important to you as a mother and to a, to one that wants to be able to explain and to teach why we're a little bit in the predicament that we are, how we've veered away from the constitution or how uh, new amendments have disrupted what our founders gave us and, and put us in kind of this mess that we're in now. And so um, can I see that first slide and then maybe we'll go right to the second slide. So what I'm gonna recommend, we're gonna put in the chat here, let's go on to that next slide, is this one page outline of the US Constitution. There it is. I would recommend mamas that you print this off. I would like print off 10 and I would put them in all your books, kind of like hopefully you've ordered these little uh, bookmarks with the 28 principles of liberty. You, you get them five bucks for a hundred and you have these bookmarks everywhere. You should have this outline here and put it in all your books. What we're, it, it's like the cliff notes of the constitution. So what we're gonna learn today is article one. And so it, it, it just, reminds you in a nutshell what is in the first article of the Constitution. It, it is the longest um, article. Uh, it's 10 sections. And, and so it's just good to have to kind of help you um, with the organization of where you can find things. All right. So uh, this will be a really great resource that you'll want to have um, that outline. So the United States Constitution is the oldest written national constitution still in use today. Did you know that? We're obviously not the oldest country in uh, the world, but this is the oldest national constitution still in use today. And it is also one of the shortest, about 7,000 words. It's very straightforward and it's simple, I think. It establishes the three branches of government, legislative, executive, judicial. And we're gonna talk about just first article today, the legislative branch. And within the three branches, it creates a system of checks and balances. So one doesn't become more powerful than the other. Now, some of those checks and balances have been removed. So, you know, the executive branch is the most powerful branch, most powerful office in the world. And our founding fathers never intended for that to be. But the, what the our founders gave us, they perfectly balanced each other. They had checks and balances on each other. The courts, not so much. And they were worried about they didn't have enough checks on the courts. And we'll talk about that next week when we talk about Articles 2 and 3. But, you know, this 
So they didn't want one branch to dominate the other. And this system is really what defines American government that was so unique to the governments uh, of the world at that time. So today, let's see the next slide. We're going to discuss just article number one. There are seven articles and 27 amendments. We are just studying article number one, LEGSASAR. Write that acronym down. This is how I taught myself and my children that to remember the seven articles, Legislar. Let's see the next slide. And the L, of course, stands for the legislative branch. So um, I will teach you how I teach the Constitution to children in uh, uh, all throughout the 12 Cottage Meeting series. But I would have a flip chart. I'd always put Legislar at the top. And then I would put like article number one, legislative, and I would just use this little and I'd put the 10, uh, the 10 sections from legis the legislative article. And we would usually spend two weeks on this big flip chart. And I would just spend a few minutes in our family devotional in the morning. And I will, I will teach what I would teach about each one of these articles and the resources I would use. But legislar is really important in your mind if you can remember that. Um, acronym to keep straight what each article is about. Okay, so there you have it. The executive, judicial, states' rights, how to amend the Constitution, the supremacy clause, and then that last seventh article is just how to ratify the Constitution, which simply just says it takes nine out of the 13 states to ratify and amend them adopt it and to put it into force. And so there you have it. Okay. So it's interesting that they put the legislative uh, branch, the very first article in the Constitution, because our founders believed that it should be preeminent in the American government because our government derived it, its powers from the voice of the people. Now, like I said, this is the, the largest article with the most sections and clauses under each section. Uh, in the Constitution. So let's turn to our seminar number two. And um, remember, all the answers to the fill in the blanks are at the back of our keys are at the back of each seminar. So that's where you get your answers to fill in the blank. There are many Americans in the United States who will live their whole life not having the slightest idea how our founders uh, arrived at this formula for constitutional government that has made America so successful and powerful and really living under these true principles under the first hundred years uh, of our existence. This is how we only had 6% of the population, but we were pro producing 50% of the world's wealth. It didn't just happen by accident. And even politicians today who are elected into office, even though they might be well-meaning and, and love our country and, and profess to be patriotic, they even lack the founder's wisdom because they're mostly uh, never had the opportunity to study the founder's political philosophies and the school systems or their prosperity economics by Adam Smith. Because really the last 50, 60, 70 years, we began to, you know, remove these faith stories of our founders and to remove God 
from the school systems. And so, you know, a, a lot of our current politicians came under a school system and a university that taught the inherent evils of capitalism or, you know, the intolerance of having moral standards or beliefs. And so they even are ignorant in uh, the founder's wisdom. So the next four lessons, we're gonna highlight the founder's formula for a free and prosperous America. Now, as I'm clipping along, let's see that next slide. If anything I say seems kind of confusing or obscure, I want to really recommend this book, The Making of America. Um, and it's uh, it's the comprehensive line by line explanation of what the founders meant for every line uh, of, of the constitution. And so it, it gives the line and then it will give several quotes from founders on explaining what that meant. It's such a great resource. You, you can get it through the nccs.net, the National Center for Constitutional Studies.net. This is also where you can get these bookmarks for like five bucks. You can get the hundred bookmarks. You can get the pocket constitutions from NCCS. So I, I would really recommend getting this book as a resource. Um, a cottage meeting that I belong to of a group of women that that still meet every Wednesday morning. We went through this making of America. It took us two years, our little neighborhood cottage meeting because there is a student edition with fill in the blank. But man, those women that went through that two-year class, they, if I could tell you some of the things they're doing in their homes and in their communities, I mean, it just laid such a strong foundation of the constitution and the great events in the history. And the wonderful thing about making of America, it goes exactly in order to our healing of America seminar. So it'll be easy to, you know, to have that as a resource and find things because what is covered in that same order in the making of America is the same order of the healing of America. Okay, so let's go to the next slide. Last week, I told you about the delegate from Pennsylvania. His name was Governor Morris, and he had his has a peg leg, but he was a really gifted writer. And so he was a part of the committee of style uh, that kind of cleaned up and, and, and polished the Constitution in the writing. And he wrote the preamble. Um, and the preamble is really just kind of a concise, succinct way of explaining the benefits of living in the United States. And it was also served as a reminder to, uh, you know, uh, the legislators and to guide the courts and also to remind the people, hey, this is what our new government's going to be about. And, and these are your, some of your rights and privileges. So for years, I have taught my children the Constitution, or not the Constitution, the preamble through these little hand motions. So I'm going to show you them now. Um, and, and in the back of the book are these hand motions. So I would like to challenge you to teach your children today the preamble of the United States that just succinctly tells uh, your children what the benefits are of living in the United States. So it starts like this. Maybe you want to put me on full view. We, the people of the United States, now I can't look at United States of America, in order to form a more perfect, okay, see how perfectly that perfect union, establish justice. These are the scales of justice. Um, oh, establish justice. Hold on just a sec. What's the next one? Someone cue me. Establish justice. Hold on. I mean, I'm, I'm turning back on my book. Ensure. Wait. Ensure. Okay. 
ensure like a little umbrella, ensure that you're going to be protected, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, right? Promote the general welfare. Now it's really important. They didn't say individual specific welfare, but the well-being of the nation is what they meant. And secure, like you're grabbing something, secure the blessings of liberty, like Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty, to ourselves and our posterity, brother, sister, baby, what the star says, posterity. We do ordain, so like we set apart on the head, we ordain and establish, we're establishing this constitution, like you're opening the scroll, this constitution for the United, because we're United, United States of America, the flying eagle. Now, your kids will have a fun time if you teach them, I promise you, the preamble to um, those little hand motions. And my kids, for years, I had taught, and I, I stopped doing it this year because I did it for so many years. I just have one child left. But obviously, I need to pick it back up again. But once you teach your child something, even if you do it for a year and then you don't do it for a year, if you go back to doing it, they will pick it up just like that. And those hand motions are so good. In the back of the book of seminar two, it also tells you exactly what the each line means, the found, founders intended. So I go back and read that as well. So the preamble is really a wonderfully succinct introduction to the content of the constitution and really Every American should, Americans should learn it. Okay, so article number one, the legislature has 10 sections. It is the largest of the seven articles and basically it just creates the laws. And we have a two house system. Let's see that next slide. It says all legislative powers contained hereon are granted invested in Congress. And it gave the people the right not to be subjected to any federal law unless it had been approved and um, reviewed by the majority of the people's representatives. You know, that's why you could really refute executive orders and Supreme Court decisions because the, the law upon which we are by law um, in the constitution, we need to uphold are the ones that have been put forth by the people that we have uh, 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 voted into office, our representatives right there, all right? And so we'll talk about how executive orders and how Supreme Court decisions uh, became as valid as the statutes and the Constitution, and that's not what our founding fathers intended. Okay, so um, the House of Representatives, when it says promote liberalism, it means that they're liberal with our resources. They want to solve problems. These representatives are only in, in office two years, so they want to see the problems and they want to solve them quickly so they can get reelected again. So they're liberal in trying to solve problems is what that means. Uh, and the state, uh, states are to determine um, the qualifications that they are elected by the people. States determine the qualifications of the voters, which um, means that they, what that means is that the states were actually allowed in the constitution in this section too, who would vote. 
So 20 states before 1920, when women federally were given the right to vote according to the constitution, 20 states already had women voting because in the constitution it says it's the states that decide who can vote. And so we didn't necessarily need the 19th amendment in 1920, but nevertheless, we had it. And I think eventually every state would have caught on board, would have hopped on board and had women voting. But um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's interesting, it did, you know, and that's something we'll talk about when we get and study the 19th amendment and some of these amendments that came later on. But anyways, um, back to the House of Representatives, their qualifications, they have to be 25 years old. There's currently 10 members of Congress that are in that, uh, 20, are 26 to 34 range, young. The, the youngest member of uh, the House is a fellow from Florida. His name is Frost, Maxwell Frost. He's a black man, 26, Democrat from Florida. It was um, Madison Cawthorn. He was the youngest, uh, but he lost his uh, reelection last year, I believe, in 2022. He was 25 years old. He was the representative from North Carolina in the wheelchair, but that's that's pretty young, isn't it? Uh, you can be 25, you have to be a citizen for seven years. There's 435 members or um, member representatives in the House of Representatives and the House, uh, they capped that by 1929. They didn't want to make it any uh, larger than that. And so what that means is there's a census every 10 years, but right now that means every Congress person represents approximately about 700,000 people in their district, all right? There's currently 222 Republicans in the House and 213 Democrats to make up 435 members, all right? So the Republicans control the House. That means the Speaker of the House is the Republican remember all that controversy getting him reelected recently, and that is Speaker McCarthy, and he is a Republican, of course, from California. He's 58 years old. Okay, let's see the next slide. The structure of the Senate is known as the wing of um, uh, conservatism, meaning they um, the wing of resource, they ask, wait a minute, can we afford this? And does it infringe on our rights? And until 1913, it was the state legislatures that um, voted in their senators for each state because the senators were supposed to be uh, the protection for the states from a over-aggressive runaway federal government. Now, in 1913, all that balance of power changed uh, with the 17th Amendment, which then um, removed the state legislatures electing the senators for the states, but gave, it, gave that right to the people. So what began to happen is our senators started acting more like House of Representatives. They just wanted to spend, 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 because they knew the people were gonna put them in and they weren't conserving the state's resources because you know a program that uh, Congress passes for the people of California, everyone else in the federal, uh, in this, uh, other states are gonna have to pay for that program. And so that's where the senators would have said, wait a minute, how is this gonna impact our state? But senators aren't necessarily looking out for their states anymore because it's the people that reelect them. So they just try and make more and more programs to ensure spend, spend, spend to ensure that they're gonna get reelected. And so this has caused a disruption of power. And we will talk about this more when we talk about the 17th amendment. But um, 
you know, and that's that's the reason uh, why George Washington had this conversation with Thomas Jefferson when Thomas Jefferson came back over uh, from Europe after serving as a minister after the Constitution was written. He asked, well, why do the senators stay in six years and the representatives too? And George Washington explained, it's like pouring, you know, hot tea into a saucer. You let it cool. And it's like uh, pouring legislation into a saucer. And that second chamber, the Senate, cools it a little bit, uh, ask these questions. Wait a minute, can we afford this? Does it infringe upon the rights of my state and my people in my state? Kind of this idea of letting cooler heads prevail so that they're not so, you know, they don't have to solve problems as quickly either because they're in for six years. So they can ask the harder questions, you know, and be more conservative about the resources. And so this is why they're in for six years. Now, remember the House impeaches a president, but it's the Senate's job to determine the guilt. They have the trial and actually remove. So in our lifetime, We've seen a couple of impeachments, 1980, 1998 with Clinton and Trump was impeached twice. And in order to get impeached by the house, you just have to have a simple majority. Okay, so that's about 219 plus one. But in the Senate to actually remove you from the office, you have to have a super majority of senators. So there's a hundred senators. So you need, I believe 66, 67 for a super majority. And they did not have that for Clinton or when Trump was impeached twice. And so they, these, these presidents remained in office. But anyway, so that's a little bit about the structure of the house and the Senate. Section number four, talks about uh, elections. And so they they said that the states can determine elections, but then in 1842, they actually, um, in the constitution it said, but the federal government could alter the arrangements of elections if need be. And so they did in 1842, they, they um, got a little bit more specific about how uh, House members were going to be elected by their districts because they, uh, instead of the state as a whole. And then they also changed uh, elections to be the first Tuesday in 1866 uh, or the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And that has stayed consistent. They also made a change um, to, they used to, they used to have the elections and then allowed four months before the president would be put into office uh, back in the day, because oftentimes it just took that long for a president to get his affairs in order and to pack up his house and get on the, the you know, the railroad <laughs> and take, you know, travel in, in into Washington, D.C. But with modern times, there began to be some chicaneries during that four month lame duck period of when a person is elected and actually has to report to office. And so they passed the 20th amendment that um, moved uh, the time that a president is inaugurated from March until, uh, what is it, January 20th, I guess they're inaugurated, is it the third day of January where the president's, no, the House, uh, the, the Congress shows up on January 3rd and the president is inaugurated January 20th when it's so cold outside. Now, when there was the controversy of the last election, it being fair, I think a lot of people really wish that we had had till March to kind of work out, you know, some of the errors and the illegalities that we saw in, in certain states. 
and they thought, um, you know, maybe there was more insidious reasons of moving that up than really than they were. That's just the history that that when that lame duck amendment, uh, and I believe that was passed sometime in the late early 1900s, that moved the elections up. Not not so important, but anyways, I just thought I'd explain that um, to you. And then section five just talks about the uh, rules of order for the operations of Congress. Section six talks about their salary. Um, and it says the federal government pays the salary of the legislative branch. Because remember during um, the early history of our country that states didn't have money. And so the Congress people, the delegates had to pay their own way to the constitutional convention. So they didn't want that to happen again. So they decided the House and senators would be paid from the US Treasury and their current salary um, since 2012, they have not gotten a raise. The congressmen and senators, uh, representative senators get $174,000 and the leadership get uh, about 20 to 40,000 more. So Chuck Schumer, who, who is the Senate leader today, and McCarthy, who is the Speaker of the House, get $224,000 a year. Now, I'm going to tell you that that has not increased since 2012. And um, compared to the private sector, it's, um, it's probably lower than most middle level executives or managers in the Washington, D.C. area. So you know, I know members personally that live in their office because they still have to maintain their residency in their home, in their home state and a home or an apartment. Oftentimes you will find six house members living together in like a three bedroom apartment on the house because it's expensive and they use the shower facilities and in the, um, the gym, uh, in the Capitol's gym um, <laughs> to, to bathe. So, you know, uh, they, they are, some of them are not necessarily doing it for the money, probably for the power. Now, um, it's interesting how some of these career politicians who have profited from their political connections, like uh, think of Maxine Waters, she represents California. She has uh, been in Congress for over 40 years, didn't bring money to the office, but she lives in a $4.3 million home in one of the wealthiest parts of Los Angeles. So you're like, hmm, and even George Biden, or George, um, President Biden has spent, has spent over 40, almost 50 years in office. And he, he was kind of came from humble beginnings, but he owns two multi-million dollar homes. And I think his net worth is about $9 million. Now they only make 174,000 a year. So, you know, it's interesting. They have a rule that um, it's, it's, uh, it, that, that watch how they get their money, you know, and the off chances that they're being bribed or something like that. But I think there's actually ways around it as well. They passed in 1978 uh, called the Ethics and Government Act where the members of Congress can only make 15% over their congressional salary, all right? So they can only make an additional 30,000 over 174,000, but it doesn't apply to un in unearned income which means stocks, interest, dividends, or royalties from books. And I wonder if speaking engagements, I, I don't think they can, I don't think they can make um, big chunks of money from speaking engagements. So maybe that's why a lot of them write books because it's a, it's a way, but obviously they have profited these 
long-term politicians from their connections politically because uh, based on their salary, they, they shouldn't quite be living in, in some of the wealth that some of them do. So that's that's interesting, isn't it, about their salary? Okay, section number seven, let's see where we are. Section number seven talks about the procedure for passing, let's see that next slide, for passing um, a law. Remember that Schoolhouse Rock, the cartoons on Saturday morning? Let's see, there you go. Um, it, it it puts it so succinctly how a bill on Capitol Hill becomes a law. So let's go ahead and watch it. It's kind of cute. Maybe you haven't watched it in like forever, but it explains it really well. Okay, let's let's watch this little video. How a bill becomes a law on Capitol Hill. Whew. You sure gotta climb a lot of steps to get to this Capitol building here in Washington. Well, I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. Gee, Bill, you certainly have a lot of patience and courage. Well, I got this far. When I started, I wasn't even a bill. I was just an idea. Some folks back home decided they wanted a law passed, so they called their local congressman, and he said, you're right, there ought to be a law. Then he sat down and rolled me out and introduced me to Congress, and I became a bill. And I'll remain a bill until they decide to make me a law. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I got as far as Capitol Hill. Well, now I'm stuck in committee, and I'll sit here and wait while a few key congressmen discuss and debate whether they should let me. Sorry about that. I am still just a bill. of those congressmen arguing is all that discussion and debate about you yeah i'm one of the lucky ones most bills never even get this far i hope they decide to report on me favorably otherwise i may die die <laughs> yeah die in committee oh but it looks like i'm gonna what? live now i go to the house of representatives and they vote on me if they vote yes what happens then i go to the senate and the whole thing starts all over again oh no oh yes I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And if they vote for me on Capitol Hill, well, then I'm off to the White House where I'll wait in a line with a lot of other bills for the president to sign. And if he signs me, then I'll be along. I hope and pray that he will. But today I am still just a bill. You mean even if the whole Congress says you should be a law, the president can still say no? Yes, that's called a veto. If the president vetoes me, I have to go back to Congress and they vote on me again, and by that time you're so By old. that time, it's very unlikely that you become a law. It's not easy to become a law, is it? No, but how I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill. He signed your bill, now you're a law. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I 
I mean, is that is that not the cutest little cartoon? But either I, I, it pretty much explains. Look, you can see it takes the, our founders wanted it to take a lot of time and effort to shepherd a bill through the legislative process because they didn't want it to just to like be dropping making bills uh, on the on the whim of the people so to speak they wanted us to be governed by law not the whims of the people but they wanted it to be a slow deliberate process so if if any uh bills that involve money spending money are are put forth it has to be initiated in the house otherwise any bill can be either initiated in the senate or the house and it goes through the same process on both sides that um, the bill is introduced and then it goes to a, a, an assigned committee and it can die there unless enough people in the committee vote on it to have it then heard on the floor. And then they kind of uh, discuss and amend and then they vote on it and then they have to send it to the other house to go through that same process. And if the other house makes any changes or amends what what the house that it just came from uh, sent it to, then it has to go back and over to that origi originating uh, body and it has to go through that process again until they can can vote on um, uh, unanimously a vote. And I believe it is two thirds of the house and the Senate vote on it. And then they send it, I don't know why I don't know that, um, uh, to the president and he has 10 days to consider that. And if he doesn't take any action, it immediately goes into um, law uh, unless he vetoes it. And if he vetoes the bill that the Senate and the House with two thirds uh, agreement from both sides, if, if he vetoes it, then they can overrule that veto if two thirds of the House, that's 287 members, and two thirds of the Senate, that's 66 members, they can override his veto. You don't often see that. And it, it nowadays it doesn't get to that point because the president knows exactly what's going on. He has his lobbyists in Congress. And so he, you know, he's letting that the Congress know that he's not pleased, he wants to change it. So we don't see as much vetoing as we have in the past, but that was a check and balance on the president and on Congress there, that, that veto. Okay, section number eight is very important because that tells you the 20 powers that the states were willing to delegate to the Congress. Now, remember that weak Articles of Confederation uh, that they worked under in the beginning of our nation in 1776 to about 1787. Um, we almost lost the Revolutionary War because it just didn't give enough authority or power to the federal government to perform its legitimate functions. And so let's let's discover which powers the, the states were willing to, to give to the, the federal government. It's, it's called the 20 Enumerated Powers, and it's in uh, Article 1, Section 8. They gave them the power to tax, to tax uniformly. Let's see number one, the power to tax. And they wanted it to be um, uh, fair. They used the word uniform. So not to excessively tax some or redistribute to others kind of thing. And they also knew that they um, uh, could tax to pay for the d defense government. Now, 
um, there's a clause in here that talks about uh, the taxes could be spent for the general welfare of the whole nation as it, it carries out its duties to oversee the well-being of the nation. And um, they never intended for it to be spent for individual or special groups or special geographical areas. And this, is, this clause was, was designed by the founders to be a, a limitation on the taxing powers of Congress. However, something happened um, when Alexander Hamilton was Secretary of Treasury under George Washington. He argued that this general welfare clause to tax uh, was a, a clause to grant power um, to spend money for good causes, regardless of um, whether it was for local or special welfare or general welfare. Now, Alexander Hamilton never presented this idea during the Constitutional Convention because it would have been immediately rejected because it torpedoes the whole idea of a limited federal government, right? That they can spend for any good uh, general cause, you know, groups of people throughout the country. And uh, Hamilton um, was immediately opposed by Jefferson and Madison when he talked about this, uh, you know, general welfare clause and how he thought it needed to be interpreted because, um, because once again, it, it, uh, this, the general wel wel welfare clause was meant to benefit the nation as a whole, not special groups or special regions. Now, something happened in 1936. You're going to hear me talk about this Butler case where the Supreme Court virtually amended the Constitution by judicial opinion in the Butler case. And there's a one page little summary of the Butler case in the back of seminar number two. So I'd recommend reading it at some point. But uh, Justice Roberts, not the same Roberts that we have today, this was 1936, and four other justices actually handed down a dictum that um, followed Hamilton's doctrine of taxing and spending for any cause that they deemed beneficial. And Hamilton's doctrine wasn't even a doctrine. It was just a kind of a concept or idea that Hamilton floated out there. And the court used that idea to um, rule in the Butler case saying that the general welfare clause could be used for special dispensations or special groups and hence ultimately it would lead to special programs being funded by the government. This really was an unconstitutional dictum that in 1936 that the Supreme Court put forth and it really opened the floodgates of the U.S. Treasury to begin to to unlimitedly loot and, and to put monies to special causes and to, to be exposed to special groups, you know, buying them off to get special, you know, exceptions or monies. And um, it ultimately uh, um, took advantage of the 16th Amendment that we'll talk about in a few weeks uh, that introduced income taxes. Our, our founders under this uh, power here intended if, if like the state of Wyoming made it 3% of the population, that state was going to be, according to what they intended, the state would be responsible for 3% of coming up with the budget to pay for, you know, all of the federal programs. And it was the state's rights to determine how they were going to tax their individual citizens of that state to come up with their part of the budget. But when the 16th Amendment was put forth in 1913, a lot of bad things happened. The 16th Amendment, the 17th Amendment, and the Federal Reserve, which was very harmful to what our founders gave us. 
because uh, it, it began to tax people at graduated incomes. And so um, it, it really violates the 14th clause of the 14th amendment, the equal protection clause, because it meant that the income of the wealthy became less sacred because they were gonna be taxed more, not uniformly. I love one of the books uh, by Ben Carson. He talks about how tithing was a uniform tax. Whether you were rich or poor, God just required you to pay 10%. And that's what our founders intended, these taxes to be uniform. And so with the Butler case and the 16th Amendment, we began to have these graduated income uh, uh, taxing abilities, which uh, then allowed the government to amass much more money and for it to grow bigger so they could establish more programs so they could ensure that they would get reelected kind of thing. And so you can see how um, this, this enumerated power has been mis, misused by, um, uh, you know, recent, oh, I don't know, in the last hundred years, uh, politicians, because maybe they weren't schooled in the founder's wisdom of, of what they wanted to be taxed and how, how uh, you know, people were to be taxed. Okay, the second enumerated power is to borrow money that, that Congress could borrow money on the credit of the United States with the intention of us being able to pay it back, right? And, and um, we could seriously damage our credit if we were amassing excessive debt, the founders knew, and, uh, and which would then therefore lead to unstable currency due to inflation because we would have to um, raise prices. Uh, as the purchasing power goes down, we have to raise prices and I um, mean, come on, we're living this firsthand right now as our debt is 31, almost $31 trillion. I was just in New York City last weekend and in front of a bank, they had a running total of uh, the nation's debt, almost $31 trillion. I mean, um, our founder Jefferson said that to borrow against the next generation was indecent and immoral. And so the way that we have continued to borrow without paying it back, um, you know, one of our founding principles, our founders understood that the burden of debt was just as destructive to human freedom as was uh, an invasion, subjugation by conquest. So they would be horrified how we've been uh, willing to continue to spend, 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 because we're setting up our future generations to be in bondage. I mean, uh, you know, debt is, they likened it to being invaded by, you know, foreign powers. Okay, uh, the third power is to regulate commerce. Now, um, this was one of the three compromises that we talked about last week. Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and amongst several states. But what has happened through the years is uh, Congress has, used it as we can get involved within the states, their com commerce. Now remember, um, they, they put forth this commerce clause because some of the Southern states were charging more money for certain states, Northern states that they didn't like. And the Northern states said, okay, we'll give you 20 years to, to stop the importation of slavery. If we can you know, ensure that this commerce clause will regulate that that you know, certain states can't ping states they don't like and charge them more, okay? So this was the compromise of the North and the South. But what has happened is the federal government has used this commerce clause to begin to regulate 
within the states, not amongst the states, but within the states. And they have, you know, like OSHA, that Occupational and Safety Health Administration that can come right into a state, right into a business and shut them down. We saw how the government harms small businesses with all the COVID mandates and regulations, you know, uh, because they were regulating commerce within the states, within the businesses, which is not how the wording or what the founders intended. And then certainly we saw it played out with Obamacare when um, he, um, you know, had every person, every business uh, was required um, to, uh, to, uh, to provide uh, healthcare. And he was violating this commerce clause. Um, and the, the Supreme Court actually a few years after in 2012 actually uh, declared Obamacare unconstitutional when you force um, businesses or, or people to purchase healthcare. And so um, that has been misused, this commerce clause. Okay, uh, we're on, oh my goodness sakes, we're only on power number four. They can establish rules of nat naturalization, which is immigration. Power number five, let's just clip away here. They can establish rules on bankruptcy. Power number six, Congress can establish, establish uh, money, how to coin money. It was going to be, it was based on uh, gold and silver. And boy, we strayed away from this uh, monetary system in 1913 again, when the Federal Reserve abandoned the gold and silver standard. But this is um, what uh, our, our powers the Congress had. And then power number seven to fix standards of weight and measures because there was fraudulent uh, standards during the Revolutionary War. So to ensure a pound was a pound or a mile was a mile or a gallon was a gallon, Congress oversees that. Power number eight to provide punishment for counterfeiting. Power number nine to establish post office and roads. Power number 10 to grant copyrights and patents. Power number 11, I'm just clipping through these because we only have an hour to establish federal courts inferior to the Supreme Court. And we'll talk more about that next week when we talk, or yeah, when we talk about the um, judicial uh, branch. Power number 12, the right to punish piracies on the high seas or felonies and offenses against uh, nations. Power number 13, the right, it is Congress that has the right to declare war, but something interesting happened well, um, starting with the Korean War and then the Vietnam War, uh, Congress did not declare uh, those wars. It was uh, it, the president as commander in chief um, uh, as a commitment to the United Nations. And this really flew in the face of this power that it's Congress that declares war. And really, if Congress doesn't want a war, if they really had the spine and the backbone, they just defund it because Congress holds the purse strings, okay, all right, to funding anything. But um, uh, what has happened in, in, in recent years is members of Congress don't want to make these hard decisions. So they abdicate some of these 20 enumerated powers to the president, let him make the hard decision. And, uh, and that certainly goes against what our founding fathers with the 25th principles said they wanted peace and commerce and honest dealings and friendships with all nation and entangling alliances with none. When you have presidents making alliances with other countries, then, then the enemies of that country now becomes the United States enemy. And so this is why they didn't want presidents to be able to declare war. 
Okay, power number 14, uh, Congress has the right to establish rules dealing with captures on land or seas. They can raise up and support the armies. It's the Congress every year that puts forth the budget for the army. All right, every year it has the um, Congress uh, funds the, the military um, because um, they 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 didn't want you know uh, to be once every four years because they were worried possibly that a president could build up a large standing army during peacetime, but. They also understand that the military has to be funded because, and this is one of their principles, if a free people is to be maintained, they have to stay strong, militarily strong. So even in peacetime, you know, if other nations of the world know that we're fully funded and have all, all the, you know, the, the equipment necessary, it, it, um, it doesn't invite sneak attacks when they know we're militarily strong. So it's Congress that provides an, uh, the means to, um, pass the military budget each year and also to raise up and maintain the Navy that I think power 16 is a little bit overkill because I think you understand uh, the idea that they're that they're putting forth in 15 and 16. Power number 17, Congress has the right to call it state militias to protect its citizens. So it's Congress, not the president that calls up uh, the military of various states. Oh boy, if you were here during... <laughs> The inauguration of Joe Biden, uh, there was 25 National Guards and military. I mean, there was more military there for his uh, inauguration than soldiers we had in Afghanistan and Iraq combined at that time. And Congress called them up for fear of uh, whatever might have happened. And so and also state governors can call it the National Guard, you know, flood control or search and rescue or riots or that kind of thing. In the times of emergency, a president actually can require states or Congress to grant him a waiver. It's called posse comitatus. Have you heard of that? To empower troops under his command, but then Congress always has to pay for it. But um, it's interesting that it is Congress's uh, responsibility to call up um, state militia to suppress their insurrections. And maybe this is what they were worried about during the inauguration, it was very peaceful, but they had 25,000 mil 25, military at the inauguration. Okay, power number 18, uh, to have Congress shall have authority over the place of the seat of government. So they wanted Washington DC to be a neutral, non-political territory. Uh, and so they made this 10 mile square area called Washington DC to be designated as the seat of government. And they didn't want Congress to be vulnerable to the pressures of the political leanings of that host state. But something happened in 1961, they adopted the, the 23rd Amendment, which, came, which gave the District of Columbia three electoral votes. Those votes, I live in Washington, DC. I live you know, a half a mile from the DC line, 15 minutes from the White House. When they gave um, the District of Columbia those electoral votes, it became very political. I have never known uh, that my 30 years I've lived in Washington, D.C., a mayor who's been Republican, it's always been Democrat, Mayor Muriel Bowser, and also everyone on the city council is um, these. I've never known a Republican to win. So isn't it interesting? It is the most politically um, leaning, uh, volatile uh City. That's why when a Republican wins and becomes president and he has his inaugural parade, 
uh, it, it's almost X-rated to take your children down to go to the parade because the protesters are there with their signs that are pretty profane and, and raunchy. And, and so really, uh, Congress did not do a good job when they passed the 23rd Amendment uh, and politicized Washington, D.C. Because and and um, Congress got this idea because in the, our early history during Philadelphia, it was such a uh, uh, there was violence and it was a politicized when it was the temporary capital in Philadelphia. So they didn't want to have that experience, you know, play out again. And so this is why they wanted D.C. to be neutral politically. Okay, power 19, the established uh, Congress can establish federal lands within a state. Uh, for for the erection of forts, arsenals, dockyards, and buildings. What happened though um, uh, when the Western states later on uh, began to come in um, to the Union? The government unconstitutionally withheld properties. So, like when Alaska was uh, made a state, ninety six percent of Alaska is held by the federal government. So all states did not come in on equal footing, like the early 13 colonies and all the states that were purchased under the Louisiana Purchase. The federal government only owns about 1% of that land, but all the, the later Western states, great portions of their land are held by the federal government. And you can see by why those Western states, you know, are always trying to get their federal lands back. Uh, and, and even said in the Northwest Ordinance in, in 1787 that all states coming into the Union were to be on equal footing. And so um, what the government has done and holding, I lived in Utah for a time, over half of the land in Utah is owned by the federal government. And so just imagine if the federal government would sell back these federally held lands to the states uh, the money that the federal government could make from those states and the states then could begin to privatize, do anything they wanted with the, those lands, but the money that the federal government would earn, how we could pay down that $31 trillion from all this land that, that they own and control. It's an idea. Okay, power number 20, to do whatever is necessary and proper. This, some scholars say this clause is known as the elastic clause. They've taken advantage of this. Congress can do whatever is necessary and proper to carry out the 20 enumerated clauses. And so uh, this has been misinterpreted and changed from um, what the founders originally intent is. They've sometimes evoked this uh, 20th power to do some of the things that you know, this is why our founder said that the leaders needed to be virtuous and morally strong to adhere to the in intent, the original intent of what the founders meant. Okay, section number nine, and I'm not going to have so much time to talk about it, and it's so interesting. It's the slavery issue. It was going to be just a few areas in which they were going to restrict um, uh, the federal government, and one of them was on the slavery because this was part of the compromise, the three compromises in the Constitution that they were going to allow for the importation of slaves until for 20 years until 1808. Now it was the consensus of um, the state uh, the states during the convention that slavery was on its way out. And even in the South, only one out of every 17 households owned slaves. But because the slaves were considered property, many of them were mortgaged to the European banks and it would have put the um, Southern slave owners uh, you know, homes and, and properties at economic peril if, if they just did away with slavery. And so they gave them 20 years to phase out the importation of slaves. And um, 
my husband gives the best one hour. This is my husband, this that handsome black fellow under the Thomas Jefferson Center website. It's an hour slavery and the founding fathers dispelling, dispelling the smear campaign waged against the founding fathers. And he explains, oh, it's so wonderful to have a black man explain, you know, um, slavery and our founding fathers and defending the founding fathers. It's really good. And and how the enemies of our founders tried to misconstrue that three-fifths clause saying that, oh, the founders only thought slavery's uh, 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 Black people were valued, not even valued as a whole human life. And that has nothing to do with that three-fifths clause, which you can find in this first um, article in section two, clause three. Uh, and it really had everything to do with representation. For example, in 1790, there 77% of the population of South Carolina were slaves. And, and so, um, but there was a large population of slaves. And so um, what that meant was that they could have more white representation because you were given representation in the House of Representatives based on your population. And so what it could mean were those Southern states could have more representation in the House of Representatives, which could possibly ensure that some form of slavery, you know, be protected uh, throughout history if, if those Southern states had, you know, the highest levels based on the count of um, the slaves. And so it was, they, they made that three-fifths clause just for the purpose of representation, not placing a value on the lives of the slaves. Uh, and so the founding fathers de devised this counting method to, to limit the power of the South that they could potentially wield and ensure slavery in the future. It's interesting, the word slave is not mentioned one time in the Constitution. The founders uh, wanted uh, this to be phased out, but this was a part of the compromise because they were most intent on building the union on just nation building when they were forming uh, this they were and they were going to deal with the slave issue you know down the road so to speak and uh and so it's interesting to know that the the free states never wanted um slavery and in, in, in james madison plan they were going to abolish slavery right at the constitutional convention but then that they would have lost all the southern states and so uh, uh it, um Watch that one hour, I would recommend, and we can, we will talk about this more because oftentimes, you know, enemies of the founders like to really do a smear job on the founders and slavery and talk about this three-fifths clause. And because people don't really understand what it's about, they just assume our founders are racist and bigots and hypocrites and that kind of thing. Okay, I'm going to end it there. Section 10 is just some restrictions on the states as well. Woo! I mean, I just am going to have to take a nap after this class. Girls, we went through this <laughs> record, uh, record speed. What is interesting about these 20 enumerated powers that Congress is supposed to oversee is what is not included. Uh, what, what, um, what is the most important and powerful thing about the 20 enumerated powers is what's not on there. Do you see that they are to see uh, uh, education? Do you see was healthcare on there? Do you see that they were to oversee uh, welfare? And so you can see how they, they've gotten involved in things they shouldn't and abdicated certain things that they should be involved in. 
And they wanted, you know, these 20 powers to be limited and carefully defined and everything else our founders wanted to be determined by who? By the states and the people in the states. This is how that we were going to preserve our freedom by strong local self-government. All right. Okay. So next week, we're going to talk about articles two and three, which is the executive branch. How in the world has that become the most powerful office in the world? And um, article number three, the judiciary uh, branch and how, you know, the, the, the courts are legislating, the Supreme Court is making law, creating law from the bench, which our founding fathers, particularly Thomas Jefferson, was very worried about how the Supreme Court didn't have enough uh, chains on them and that they could take advantage of their power to, they were supposed to guard the courts, not make laws. The legislative branch was supposed to do that. Then the third week, we'll study Articles 4 through 7 and the Bill of Rights, which is the first 10 amendments. And then the fourth week, we will study Amendments 11 through 27. Record speed. But I'm, I'm telling you, you are going to have some questions. So I would get that. Let's see the next slide. I would get that Making of America book, which is a really um, helpful resource. And also have your little pocket constitutions, have one in your purse, have one. And the catechism on the United States is such a good way. This is how in 1820, kids uh, learned the con were taught the constitution um, is using the Socratic method of asking questions. And so I, I would get some of these resources as well. You know, as you begin to study the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers and what they intended, you're then able to discern truth from error and, and what people are saying is your right or is not your right. So when you watch the news or you read on social media, certain things, you can discern, oh, wait a minute, that is, that's completely against what our founders intended. It's important to keep in mind that only about 15% of the constitution has been changed or wrong. So 80, 85% is intact. So, you know, we, we can't repair something or restore or reinstate something that we don't really understand. This is why we're studying it. And I, hopefully I'm, I'm giving you the most important pertinent pieces that, uh, that you'll need to understand. My beautiful mothers and grandmothers, the constitution I believe will be one of the tools that God will use to heal this land. And those people that understand this divinely inspired document that I personally think is akin to scripture, those who understand what our founders gave us struck off by the hand of God will be used as an instrument in God's hands to be able to restore this, this constitution and to be able to heal this land. Let's see our last little verse. You know, I just, I take such uh, comfort in this beautiful scripture from second Chronicles seven fourteen. Oh, and, 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 and also, I'm sorry, this is another resource along with the catechism and the, you know, the pocket constitution and the making of America carry around this outline of the U.S. Constitution. But let's uh, let's uh, take us to the next slide. Have great faith and trust in the scripture that says, my people, if they will, you know, seek me out and call upon me and humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways. And I believe our wicked ways have been our uninformed, apathetic, kind of lazy ways of not understanding this beautiful, you know, inspired document of the Constitution. If, if we will turn from these kind of ways and seek his face and he will forgive us and he will heal our land. 
And I just want to commend you again, beautiful mamas, for being here, for taking the time to seek and to learn because it is going to justify the heavens to intervene and to heal this land, for us to heal our families and our marriages and our neighborhoods, or to heal the Constitution and ultimately uh, this, this country. Okay. We are finished with class today. I just want to remind you again, please join us for our, um, our class here, our cottage meeting series of how we break it down and teach some of these ideas and stories and constitutional ideas without putting our children to sleep or confusing them. Um, you got to learn first and that's why you're on the class. But the best way to learn something is to give it away, to, to turn it to teach your little children and learn or your teenagers or your adult children and have to explain and have to go back and forth and to be confused and then to go back, you know, to your to your seminar to the Make Your America and figure it out so they can you can be explained. It's a beautiful process and God will bless you for it. He will bless you for it and he will increase your capacity to understand and to explain, to uphold it, to defend it. And when you go and speak before people, you will speak on principle, not on emotion, and you will be powerful because principles are eternal and they transcend parties and politics, these, these principles, these tried and tested principles that we've had great success when we lived under them. So anyway.